This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 3 The Entire Bible is Today's Standard Quote, God expects us to submit to his every word and not pick and choose the ones which are agreeable to our preconceived opinions. End quote. All of life is ethical, and all of the Bible is permeated with a concern for ethics. Unlike the organization of an encyclopedia, our Bible is not written in such a way that it devotes separate sections exclusively to various tap- topics of interest. Hence, the Bible does not contain one separate, self-contained book or chapter that completely treats the subject of ethics or moral conduct. To be sure, many chapters of the Bible, like Exodus 20 or Romans 13, and even some books of the Bible, like Proverbs or James, have a great deal to say about ethical matters and contain very specific guidance for the believer's life. Nevertheless, there will not be found a division of the Bible entitled something like, quote, the complete list of duties and obligations in the Christian life, end quote. Instead, we find a concern for ethics carrying through the whole Word of God from cover to cover, from creation to consummation. This is not really surprising. The entire Bible speaks of God, and we read that the living and true God is holy, just, good, and perfect. These are attributes of an ethical character and have moral implications for us. The entire Bible speaks of the works of God, and we read that all of his works are performed in wisdom and righteousness, again, ethical qualities. The word which God has created, we read, reveals God's moral requirements clearly and continuously. History, which God governs by his sovereign decree, will manifest his glory, wisdom, and justice. The apex of creation and the key figure in earthly history, man, has been made the image of the holy God and has God's law embedded in his heart. Man's life and purpose take their direction from God. Every one of man's actions and attitudes is called into the service of the Creator, motivated by love and faith, aimed at advancing God's glory and kingdom. Accordingly, the entire Bible has a kind of ethical focus. Moreover, the very narrative and theological plot of the Bible is governed by ethical concerns. From the outset, we read that man has fallen into sin by disobeying the moral standard of God. As a consequence, man has come under the wrath and curse of God, his just response to rebellion against his commands. Sin and curse are prevailing characteristics, then, of fallen man's environment, history, and relationships. To redeem man, restore him to favor, and rectify his wayward life in all areas, God promised and provided his own Son as a Messiah or Savior. Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to qualify as our substitute, and then he died on the cross to satisfy the justice of God regarding our sin. As resurrected and ascended on high, Christ rules as Lord over all, bringing all opposition into submission to his kingly reign. He has sent the Spirit characterized by holiness into his followers, And among other things, the Holy Spirit brings about the practice of righteousness in their lives. The Church of Christ has been mandated to proclaim God's good news, to advance His kingdom throughout the world, to teach Christ's disciples to observe everything He has commanded, and to worship the triune God in spirit and in truth. When Christ returns at the consummation of human history, He will come as universal judge, dispensing punishment and reward according to the revealed standard of God's word. On that day, all men will be divided into the basic categories of covenant keepers and covenant breakers, 
then it will be clear that all of one's life in every realm and relationship has reflected his response to God's revealed standards. Those who have lived in alienation from God, not recognizing their disobedience and the need of a Savior, will be eternally separated from his presence and blessing. Those who have embraced the Savior in faith and submitted to him as Lord will eternally enjoy his presence in the new heavens and earth, wherein righteousness dwells. It's easy to see, then, that everything the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation has an ethical quality about it and carries ethical implications with it. There is no word from God which fails to tell us in some way what we are to believe about him and what duty he requires of us. Paul put it in this way, quote, Every scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work, end quote. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. If we disregard any portion of the Bible, we will, to that extent, fail to be thoroughly furnished for every good work. If we ignore certain requirements laid down by the Lord in the Bible, our instruction in righteousness will be incomplete. Paul says that every single scripture is profitable for ethical living. Every verse gives us direction for how we should live. The entire Bible is our ethical yardstick for every part of it, is the word of the eternal, unchanging God. None of the Bible offers fallible or mistaken direction to us today. Not one of God's stipulations is unjust, being too lenient or too harsh. And God does not unjustly have a double standard of morality, one standard of justice for some, and another standard of justice for others. Every single dictate of God's word, then, is intended to provide moral instruction for us today, so that we can demonstrate justice, holiness, and truth in our lives. It is important to note here that when Paul said that, quote, every scripture is inspired by God and profitable, end quote, for holy living, the New Testament was not as yet completed, gathered together, and existing as a published collection of books. Paul's direct reference was to the well-known Old Testament scriptures and indirectly to the soon-to-be-completed New Testament. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul taught New Testament believers that every single Old Testament writing was profitable for their present instruction in righteousness, if they were to be completely furnished for every good work required of them by God. Not one bit of the Old Testament has become ethically irrelevant, according to Paul. That is why we, as Christians, should speak of our moral viewpoint not merely as New Testament ethics, but as biblical ethics. The New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, requires that we take the Old Testament as ethically normative for us today. Not just selected portions of the Old Testament, mind you, but every scripture. Fail to honor the whole duty of man as revealed in the Old Testament is nothing short of a failure to be completely equipped for righteous living. It is to measure one's ethical duty by a broken and incomplete yardstick. The whole Bible. God expects us to submit to his every word and not pick and choose the ones which are agreeable to our preconceived opinions. The Lord requires that we obey everything he has stipulated in the Old and New Testaments, that we, quote, live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, end quote. Matthew 4, verse 4. Our Lord responded to the temptation of Satan with those words, quoting the Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, which began, All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do. Chapter 8, verse 1. Many believers in Christ fail to imitate his attitude here, and they are quite careless about observing every word of the God's command in the Bible. James tells us that if a person lives by and keeps every precept or teaching of God's law, and yet he or she disregards or violates it in one single point, 
that person is actually guilty of disobeying the whole. James chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, we must take the whole Bible as our standard of ethics, including every point of God's Old Testament law. Not one word which proceeds from God's mouth can be invalidated and made inoperative, even as the Lord declared with his giving of the law. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add nor take away from it. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. The entire Bible is our ethical standard today from cover to cover. But doesn't the coming of Jesus Christ change all that? Hasn't the Old Testament law been either canceled or at least reduced in its requirements? Many professing believers are misled in the direction of these questions. Despite God's clear requirement that nothing be subtracted from his law, despite the straightforward teaching of Paul and James that every Old Testament scripture, even every point of the law, has a binding ethical authority in the life of the New Testament Christian. Perhaps the best place to go in scripture to be rid of the theological inconsistency underlying a negative attitude towards the Old Testament law is to the very words of Jesus himself on the subject. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 through 19. Nothing could be clearer than that Christ here denies twice, for the sake of emphasis, that his coming has abrogated the Old Testament law. Quote, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish. End quote. Again, nothing could be clearer than this. Not even the least significant aspect of the Old Testament law will lose its validity until the end of the world. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the slightest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law. And if there could remain any doubt in our minds as to the meaning of the Lord's teaching here, he immediately removes it by applying his attitude towards the law to our behavior. Therefore, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Christ's coming did not abrogate anything in the Old Testament law, for every single stroke of the law will abide until the passing away of this world. Consequently, the follower of Christ is not to teach that even the least Old Testament requirement has been invalidated by Christ and his work. As the psalmist declared, Every one of thy righteous ordinance is everlasting. Psalm 119, verse 160. So then, all of life is ethical, and ethics requires a standard of right and wrong. For the Christian, that yardstick is found in the Bible, the entire Bible, from beginning to end. The New Testament believer repudiates the teaching of the law itself, of the Psalms, of James, of Paul, and of Jesus himself when the Old Testament commandments of God are ignored or treated as a mere antiquated standard of justice and righteousness. The word of our God shall stand forever, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8, and the Old Testament law is part of every word from God's mouth by which we must live, Matthew chapter 4 verse 4. Chapter 4. The Scope of True Obedience. Quote, Obedience must be from the heart and yet obedience must not be restricted to the heart, end quote. A number of common moral mistakes are made by believers, even after they come to the realization that God holds them accountable to his revealed commandments. Among those mistakes, two can be focused upon here as the root of many other misconceptions. On the one hand, people often fail to see that God's law requires obedience from the heart. On the other hand, people make the mistake of thinking that it is sufficient if their obedience is restricted to matters of the heart. Both of these errors, opposite in character but equal in destructive force, are addressed by God's word, showing us the full dimensions of true obedience to the Lord. Obedience from the Heart In Matthew 5.20, Jesus taught something which must have been shocking to his hearers. He said, 
quote, except your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven, end quote. The shocking thing about this was that the scribes and Pharisees had a reputation, one which they themselves were anxious to promote, for a deep commitment to obeying even the minor details of the law. But the fact of the matter was that the Pharisees were far from living up to the true demands of God's commandments. They had distorted the law's requirements, reading them in a perverse, self-justifying, and externalistic fashion. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus exposed the shallow obedience of the Pharisees for what it was, pointing out that God is not satisfied with anything short of full, heartfelt obedience to his law as comprehensively interpreted. By contrast, the Pharisees had appealed to the law in a way calculated to escape God's true and original demands, placing a hypocritical veneer of piety upon all of their actions. The Pharisees made a religious show of adhering to the law, but Christ saw that it was a mere facade. He said to them, You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied of you, saying, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. The Pharisees actually overlooked the weightier matters of the law, such as justice, mercy, and faith. Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 24. They were blind guides who trimmed down the requirements of God's law so that it could be made to appear comfortable to the cultural traditions. Quote, and he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, But you say, So you have made void the word of God for the sake of your tradition. End quote. Matthew chapter 15, verses 3 through 6 and verse 14. So it is quite possible to take an avid interest in the commandments of God and still have a heart that is far from the Lord, still have a lifestyle which is anything but pleasing to God since our attitudes and motives are out of line with the moral guidance of Scripture. We can take a concern for the fine details of the law, and we should, but not in such a way that we miss the main point in it all, namely, the display of such godly attitudes as are mentioned listed in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control, against which there is no law. Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, after Christ declared that only a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees would gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, he went on to deliver a series of illustrations of how the scribes and Pharisees held to a diminished understanding of God's requirements. He set their approach to various commandments over against his own interpretation of God's demands, thereby restoring the full measure of God's purpose and requirements to the Old Testament law. His illustrations began with the words like these, quote, You have heard it said by those of old, but I say unto you, end quote. In such sayings, Jesus was not personally dissenting from the law of God, but from the pharisaical understanding and under-evaluating of the law of God. After all, if the Pharisees really were living up to the law, and Jesus added to the law's demand, then his ex post facto condemnation of the Pharisees for not living up to his additions would be quite unfair. Rather, Jesus indicted the Pharisees for not living up to what God originally required. Quote, you have heard it said by those of old, end quote, refers to the rabbinic interpretations of the law 
passed down from one generation to another. The scribes commonly appealed to the traditional interpretations of the ancient rabbis as a way of teaching the law. The amazing thing to the crowds who heard Jesus, though, was that he taught as one having authority in himself, and not as one of the scribes, always appealing to others. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. The problem with the scribal or pharisaical understanding of the Old Testament law was that it was trite and externalistic. Jesus had to point out, in accord with the Old Testament teaching, for example, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 18 and verse 25, that hatred and lust were the root of sins of murder and adultery, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. When God commanded that his people not kill and not commit adultery, he did not merely require abstaining from the outward acts of assault and fornication. His requirement went to the heart, requiring that our thoughts, plans, and attitudes be free from violence and unchastity as well. True obedience to the law, then, stems from a heart that is right with God, a heart that seeks to please the Lord, not simply by outward conformity, but by pure attitudes as well. We see, then, why the obedience of the Pharisees was not acceptable in God's eyes. They were not truly obeying the law in its comprehensive demand, inward as well as outward. Any obedience which we are to render to God's law today, which is going to be pleasing to God, therefore, must be better than externalistic, hypocritical, self-righteous Phariseeism. It must be obedience from the heart. Obedience not restricted to the heart. A man who refrains from physical adultery while cherishing lustful thoughts is self-deceived if he thinks that he has obeyed the Lord's commandment. On the other hand, a man who thinks that he has a pure attitude and motive even though he engages outwardly in an act which transgresses God's law is just as self-deceived. God's law does not place a premium upon inwardness and attitudes of the heart at the expense of overt obedience to his requirements. When it comes to obeying the Lord, it is not simply the thought that counts. Situational ethicists who say a man can act out of love to God and love to his neighbor when he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife still stand condemned by God and his word on the final day. This should be obvious to most born-again Christians. They know that walking by the Spirit means that, unlike those in the flesh, in the sinful nature, they can keep the law of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. It is, quote, the ordinance of the law, end quote, which is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, verse 4. Those who have hearts made right with God, those who have been given a new heart by God, those who wish from the heart to please God, will seek to walk according to God's commandments. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, and chapter 36, 26, and 27. A proper heart attitude should lead to proper outward conduct as well. Obedience cannot be restricted to the heart. Jesus not only wanted the Pharisees to realize the inward values of mercy and faith, he did not want them to leave undone the minor outward matters of tithing garden vegetables. Matthew chapter 23 verse 23. Just as obedience cannot be restricted to the heart in the sense of forgetting the need for outward conformity to God's stipulations, it can likewise be said that obedience, if it is genuine biblical obedience, cannot be restricted to a concern for our own personal conduct. Full obedience embraces an interest in the obedience of those around me to the laws of God. The Christian must assume the responsibility to exhort those in his home, church, society, etc., 
to keep the commandments of the Lord. David wrote, quote, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted unto thee. End quote. Psalm chapter 51 verse 13. The Great Commission laid upon the church by Christ calls for us to teach the nations whatsoever Christ has commanded. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20. Anything less than this concern for the obedience of those around us is disloyalty to the Lord and fails to qualify as true obedience to his law. John Murray wrote, quote, The least of God's commandments, if they bind us, bind others. We must resist the virulent poison of individualism which tolerates in others the indifference and disobedience which we cannot justify in ourselves. The moment we become complacent to the sins of others, then we have begun to relax our own grip on the sanctity of the commandments of God, and we are on the way to condoning the same sin in ourselves. End quote. Heartfelt obedience to God's law will lead us to promote obedience to that same law on the part of others. True saints have indignation for those who break God's law. Psalm chapter 119, verse 53. And they are not ashamed to promote that law publicly. Verse 13. If they would keep silent in the face of disobedience, then they would become culpable for the sins they witness. As Psalm chapter 50, verse 18 says, When you saw a thief, then you consented with him by keeping your peace. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 exhorts the believer to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. Scripture, then, is quite clear in the teaching that the requirement of full obedience to God's commands extends to the active promoting of obedience to those commands in others. The Scripture-guided believer is in a position to offer genuine counsel and help to others and to his society. He knows the purity of God's law. He is able to admonish, Romans chapter 15, verse 14, and so to be quiet in the face of transgressions would be a guilty silence. Christ directed his followers that they were to be the light of the world, which is impossible if our light is placed under a basket. Matthew 5, verses 14 and 15. Consequently, the true Christian obedience to the law of God will take us beyond a concern for ourselves to a concern for the obedience of those around us. Churches will preach, either intentionally or by default, moral individualism, are failing to proclaim the whole counsel of God. The sins of our society cannot be ignored or swept under the church carpet. This short study does not by any means touch upon every facet of obedience to God's commandments, but it does point out two very important aspects of genuine obedience. We see how far-reaching God's demands are when we keep in mind that obedience must be from the heart, and yet that obedience must not be restricted to the heart. Subsection B. Cardinal Doctrines of the Faith Chapter 5 the Covenant's Uniform Standard of Right and Wrong. Quote, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. End quote. Psalm chapter 89, verse 34. If something was sinful in the Old Testament, it is likewise sinful in the age of the New Testament. Moral standards, unlike the price of gasoline or the changing artistic tastes of a culture, do not fluctuate. In the United States, there was a time when driving your car at 65 miles per hour was permissible. Now any speed above 55 is illegal. 
But God's laws are not like that, just today, unjust tomorrow. When the Lord makes a moral judgment, he is not unsure of himself, or tentative, or fickle. Unlike human lawmakers, God does not change his mind or alter his standards of righteousness. Quote, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Psalm 89, verse 34. When the Lord speaks, his word stands firm forever. His standards of right and wrong do not change from age to age. Quote, All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. End quote. Psalm 111, verse 7 and 8. Accordingly, Jesus spoke with unmistakable clarity when he said, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. Luke chapter 16, verse 17. The coming of God's righteous Son surely could do nothing to change the righteous character of God's laws, even the least of them, for then they would be exposed as unjust and less than eternal in their uprightness. So Christ issues this severe warning, Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5 verse 19 The advent of the Savior in the inauguration of the New Age do not have the effect of abrogating the slightest detail of God's righteous commandments. God has not changed his mind about good and evil or what constitutes them. We can be very glad that God sticks by his word in this way. The authority of his word for human life is as permanent as that word by which he created and governs the world. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14, and Psalm 33, verses 4 through 11. If God's word to us were not as stable as this, if he were subject to moods and changed his mind from time to time, then we could not rely on anything he told us. If God's law has a fluctuating validity, then so might his promises. If we say that a commandment given by God in the Old Testament is no longer a standard of righteousness and justice for today, then we can equally anticipate that a promise of salvation given by God in the New Testament will in some future day no longer be a permanent guarantee of his favor toward us. But praise the Lord that his word is stable. He never lets us down as did our human parents and human rulers with commands that are unfair and promises that are not kept. Whatever God says endures and cannot be emptied of validity. John ten thirty five, God's gracious salvation and the justice of his law shall not be abolished but endure forever. Quote, Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arms shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law, fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revealings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool, but my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. End quote. Isaiah chapter 51 verses 4 through 8 The righteous law of God 
which condemns our sin is as permanent as the good news from God which promises salvation from sin's judgment. Covenant, Unity and Diversity It is important to remember this, especially when some would tell us that the coming of the New Testament does away with our obligation to the Old Testament's commandments, or many of them anyway. The division of the Bible into two testaments is better understood in the biblical sense as two covenants. Prior to the coming of Christ, men lived under the Old Covenant, which anticipated the Messiah and his work of salvation. After the coming of Christ and his saving work, we live under the New Covenant. Luke chapter 22 verse 20 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 25. Within the Old Covenant scriptures, we find a few particular covenants, such as those made with Abraham and with Moses. The Abrahamic covenant is often characterized in terms of promise, and the Mosaic covenant is remembered for its strong element of law. Now some people would say that New Covenant believers are under the Abrahamic covenant of promise today, but not the Mosaic covenant with its laws. However, that is far from the outlook of the scriptural writers. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 21, Paul addresses this question to those who speak of being under one or the other covenant. Quote, is the law contrary to the promises of God? And his inspired answer is, may it never be. End quote. The fact is that all of the covenants of the Old Covenant, that is, all of the Old Testament covenants, are unified as parts of the one overall covenant of grace established by God. Paul spoke of Gentiles who are not part of the Old Covenant economy, which included the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants as strangers to the covenant of promise. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. There were many progressively revealed aspects to the single promise of God in the Old Testament, many administrations of the one overall covenant of grace. Thus, the various covenants of the Old Covenant were all part of one program and plan. Not only were they harmonious with one another, but they were all unified with the new covenant which was promised in Jeremiah 31 and is enjoyed by Christians today. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 through 13. There is one basic covenant of grace, characterized by anticipation in the Old Covenant and by realization in the New Covenant. John chapter 1 verse 17. Given the unity of God's covenant throughout history and the Bible, then, is it true that Christians living under the New Covenant are not obliged to keep the Old Covenant law, the commandments of the Old Testament, especially those given by Moses? Every covenant established by God, even the Abrahamic, Genesis 17.1, not only declares his gracious work on behalf of his people, but lays down stipulations which they are to observe as a sign of fidelity and love to him. For instance, the giving of the law at Sinai, Exodus 20-23, was preceded by God's gracious deliverance of Israel from bondage, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, and chapter 20, verse 2. God identified himself as the Lord of the covenant and rehearsed his gracious dealings with his people. Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 4, and then with that foundation and background, he delivered his law, Deuteronomy chapter 5. The failure of the Mosaic generation can be called a failure in obedience, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4, but this is identical with a failure of faith, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 9. The righteous of the Mosaic law was always to be sought by faith, not works, Romans chapter 9 verse 31 and 32. We see illustrated here that even the Mosaic Covenant characterized by law is a gracious covenant. The law which we read in the Old Testament is a provision of God's grace to us. Psalm 19 verse 29, 
and verses 62 through 64. Every covenant carries stipulations which are to be kept, as we have seen. But prior to that, we saw that all of the covenants of God are unified into one overall covenant of grace, fully realized with the coming of Christ in the new covenant. So if there is one covenant enjoyed by the people of God throughout the ages, then there is one moral code or set of stipulations which govern those who would be covenant keepers. Therefore, we must answer that, of course, New Testament believers are bound to the Old Testament law of God. His standards, just like his covenant, are unchanging. The Newness of God's Covenant This perspective is confirmed by the Word of God. When we inquire as to what is new about the new covenant under which Christians now live, we must allow the Lord to define the proper answer. We cannot read into the idea of a new covenant just anything we wish or can imagine. The revealed terms of the new covenant are given to us in both Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34, and Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 through 12. And when we look at them, we find that the new covenant is far from suppressing or changing the law or moral standard by which God's people are to live. Just the opposite is true. Contrary to those who think that the Mosaic law is not applicable to the New Testament believer, Scripture teaches us, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. The establishment of the new covenant does not imply the abrogation of the Mosaic law or its depreciation in any sense. The idea of a new law is ruled out together. The idea of a new law is ruled out altogether, for it is the well-known law of God which he says he will write upon the hearts of the new covenant believers. Unlike the old covenant where God found fault with the people for breaking his commandments, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 8 and 9, the new covenant will give internal strength for keeping those very commandments. It will write the law on believers' hearts, for out of the heart are the issues of life. Proverbs 4, verse 23. The Holy Spirit of God will indwell the heart of believers, writing God's law therein, with the result that they will live according to the commandments. Quote, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. End quote. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, those who now walk according to the Spirit have the requirement of the law fulfilled within them. America's 20th century Orthodox Protestant leader, J. Gresham Machen, said, quote, The gospel does not abrogate God's law, but it makes men love it with all their hearts. End quote. Psalm 89, verse 34 was cited above. Quote, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. End quote. God's covenant law is one unchanging moral code through Old and New Testaments. Once God has spoken his law and expressed his righteous standards, he does not alter it. Indeed, he pronounces a warning and curse upon anyone who would dare tamper with his stipulations in the slightest. Times may change, human laws may be altered, but God's law is an eternally just and valid standard of right and wrong. One of the requirements of his law which reflects his holy character is the prohibition of using a double standard. Deuteronomy 25, verse 13 through 16, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 35 through 37. It is ungodly to use one measure or yardstick with some people, and then use an altered measure with others. Quote, Diverse weights and diverse measures, both of them are like abomination to the Lord. 
End quote. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10. Accordingly, God requires that we have but one standard or moral judgment, whether it be for the stranger or the native. Leviticus 24, verse 22, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, and Numbers chapter 15, verse 16. He abhors a double standard of right and wrong, and we can be sure that he does not judge in such a fashion. Something that was sinful in the Old Testament is likewise sinful for us in the New Testament, for God's standards are not subject to fluctuation from age to age. He has one uniform standard of right and wrong. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.